Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Network. We are Blog Talk Radio's one and only authentic Catholic defenders of the deeper truths of our sacred faith. To learn more about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. If you would like to call in tonight with your comment or question, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. For follow-up information after the show, email us anytime at email at thefourpersons.com. That's email at thefourpersons.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. And welcome everybody to Wednesday of Easter week. And we got a treat for you tonight. One of my favorite Catholic apologists and has been for some time. I love reading his stuff in the Facebook groups. Uh, he is, if, if you want short and concise, he's not your guy. <laughs> okay. He will respond completely and totally to an argument, giving every conceivable reference, every conceivable writing of a church father concerning that that uh, particular doctrine. His his writings are just so full of meat and potatoes. Uh, I just love what he does, and if that if if long detailed uh, posts are your thing, and they are mine, he's the guy for you. I want to welcome Luke Haskell. Luke, how are you doing this evening? Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So, number one, how long have you been in uh, apologetics? And, and then the second part of that question. Well, go ahead and answer that, and then I'll get to the second part. Well, uh, it's it's a long story, Uh I'll, I'll, I'll try to uh, make it short and sweet, but, uh, you know, I was, I was raised in a Catholic family. I was uh, baptized Catholic at my birth. Family of nine kids, where all the kids were dedicated to the nine choirs of angels. And, uh, you know, I, I lived the Catholic faith when I was a kid and really didn't understand it that much, but... Uh, my mother was very devout, and we had, you know, Thursday night rosary groups and things like that. And, and uh, so uh, it was in my upbringing, but I really didn't have a grasp on it until uh, uh, later in my life. And, uh, about 30 years ago, uh, I had an experience with our blessed mother that I really can't explain away. And uh, I consider myself a pretty logical person. I retired as a lieutenant from a, a prison here in California where I was judge and jury. And, and I, uh, I defended things, and I, I understood, the, you know, uh, my position to judge things by the preponderance of the evidence. And uh, I kind of began to see the, the logic and the reason uh, in Catholicism. Uh, in this same way, and uh, I really began to see it after that experience I, I had with our Blessed Mother that I really can't explain away. At that time, I just asked God for you know, wisdom that I could bring people to his truth, 
And uh, from that time on, I just uh, started, uh, you know, having these sleepless nights. And in the sleepless nights, the things just started to connect over and over and over and over again in my head. And as I read, you know, the Bible and uh, thought I was coming upon something new and novel, uh, every single time I found out that the church fathers already uh, discussed it. And uh, so it's kind of a humbling feeling, but it's an assurance at the same time. Uh, A lot of people think that, uh, you know, Catholics, they... uh, they read their catechism and read the church fathers and then all of a sudden, you know, apply scripture to that where it, it was just the opposite. Uh, as I read through the scriptures and delved into them, saw the, the deep nature of the scriptures as, as a love story between an imperfect bride and a perfect groom in the covenant mystery. Uh, these things just came alive to me and, and then, uh, you know, the fathers just solidified it for me. You know, everything that you say, everything you say there is true. Uh, but let me tell you where the big frustration that I've run into over the years with Catholic apologetics is that 80% of the people that you run into uh, on the other side, the Protestant side, they just don't want to go that deep. They just don't. They, they, they want to take a, a, a verse of Scripture Uncontext, say it means this, and and that's it. They don't want to look at typology. They don't want to look at the uh, the verse in its in its historical context, its its linguistic context, uh, allegorical context, or or any of those things. And you kind of, to, to me, it must be frustrating because you go down and you give these great big long detailed breakdowns of how the church fathers understood these concepts, took them apart, meshed them up with the Old Testament uh, that was foreshadowing the reality that's being taught, and and you give this long dissertation, and they'll respond with some, you know, canned answer. They're not really even reading what you're saying or, or listening to your argument or engaging your argument anyway. Is that frustrating you put all that work and that time and effort into an audience that oftentimes tunes you out, not because what you're saying isn't isn't worthy, but because they're just not interested in putting the effort in? Well, not really, because, you know, I believe, you know, I, I was I was kind of given this insight, and, and tons of Catholics are. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not much different than Catholics. I was given this insight, and when I write this stuff and I represent it, 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 it's kind of prayer for me. And so when I think about people who are reading it, you know, and and I, and I do just, I have this obsessive compulsive nature for detail, and I, and I need to express things, you know, so. Is that there's just so many facts there, so there's inundated with facts that there's no way around the, you know the you know the facts. I mean, there's only one truth, and the Catholic Church is the truth. So, as I present them, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my head also, you know, if it's it's only by the grace of God that somebody is going to read this. It's only by the grace of God that they're going to be open to it. And so I'm thinking, even ten years down the line. Somebody's in a, in, a, in a state of mind where they've been opened up through humility, 
and they begin to have these epiphanies and see things in a different way. And all of a sudden, 10 years down the line, they go, oh, aha, I remember somebody telling me that, you know, and now I see how it flows together. So it's, you know, it's, we can only put the information out there. It's God who creates the conversion. It's God who, who, uh, you know, leads people, you know, to truth. I mean, just the fact that somebody is, becomes open to the words, this is my body, which is the foundation for understanding the entire covenant mystery all across Scripture. I mean, just the fact that they would come open to that, to those words, is grace given freely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you use that word covenant because that was uh, the show that we did Monday. Uh, we we went in depth on on that on that concept of covenant. The word covenant appears in Scripture over 400 times. Uh, and uh, this 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 idea that uh, that we that we get often from the other side that uh, Jesus did it all on the cross. He said it is finished, and and that's it. I don't have to do anything. Uh, that is not what Scripture. That's what not it's not what Scripture teaches. It does teach this covenant relationship. Yes, it was finished in the sense that Jesus finished the work that the Father sent him to do. Uh, and yet we must be like Paul uh, says in in First uh, Colossians that I unite my sufferings to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of His body. In other words, I have to fulfill my part of the covenant. Why do you think Luke that we get so much resistance to that argument? This is something that's always been a mystery to me because to me I've read the Bible. I've read the New Testament, and it seems so clear to me. It just, it almost like it jumps off the page. Why did they, did they not see it? What is, what is, what do you think is the obstacle to them seeing and, and understanding that? Well, I think the whole situation uh, that has been created is it's an alternative construct of Christianity. After 1,500 years of Christianity, 1,500 years of truth, you had a process where a fork in the road was created, this faith alone and, and uh, scripture alone, where you have faith alone, and it's a totally misrepresentative Paul's understanding of works. Uh, when he, the only works he puts down are the uh, ceremonial works of the Jewish law and the circumcision. This was the boast of the Pharisees at the Council of Jerusalem, where it says that the Pharisees who believed, you know, were trying to get the community to follow the laws of Moses, which is uh, this boast of the ceremonial law, thinking they were closer to God than the Gentiles in the church were because they kept the law. So you have this understanding of faith alone, and it removes the fear of God. If, um, uh, scripture tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is prudence. So God gave us things that were holy, and he gave us this holy fear. And uh, it's a fear of like a child going against a benevolent father. So when God tells us, I will build my church, when he says, if they don't listen to the church, treat them as heathens and publicans. When he says, I will be with you always, 
when it says if they hear you, they hear me. If they reject you, then they reject me and the one who sent me. These, there's no fear left for these words. There's no understanding of the consequences of what they mean because in, in their thinking process, and these people are dedicated to God. These people have, some have incredible charity. I mean, they do all sorts of, you know, uh, things uh, for, for, for other people. But there's something missing. It's almost like a diabolical, you know, process where once you establish this, process, this thought process, it creates a block in the mind. And so it creates a cognitive dissonance on top of that. And it's like, you know, thinking something different is like trying to pull the flesh off your own bones because you have an emotional connection to God. You believe you have this deep connection and you believe your understanding is right. So these things that contradict faith alone are, are simply unbelievable. You can't accept them, so they try to rationalize them away. One of the ways they do that is, like I just said, a false understanding that works. And you try to show them that false understanding that works. And it, at that time, if somebody's in a state of humility, they can either look at that and say, yeah, maybe I've been wrong on this. Or they're going to, you know, say, uh, try to attack the messenger. Or they try to get out of the conversation. And so it's, it's, it's a diabolical deception. I mean, there's a, there's a reference to Martin Luther, and he's talking about uh, mass, and there's a conversation with Satan. And he says that uh, uh, Satan hated the communion of saints in the mass, but he loved Martin Luther's uh, doctrine of faith alone. So Martin Luther is basically saying that he's the creator of this. And any time before that in history, he's saying that he can't see faith alone in history before his time. So basically, faith alone is a tradition of man influenced by Satan. Wow, so so much to unpack with what you just said there, because so much of what you just walked through there I've experienced myself, but let's start with this this concept of cognitive dissonance. Um, for for those of you who are listening that don't know what cognitive dissonance is, it's basically when a person uh, attempts to hold two conflicting viewpoints in their mind simultaneously. And never did I see this more clearly than about ten years ago when I was in a debate on Blog Talk Radio, and that debate is still available on the internet. I'll, I'll get a copy of it and send it to you if you want. But I had a debate with Brenda Johnson about Sola Scriptura. And she basically used the old, she, uh, what she did was she, previous three debates that I did on the subject where I just absolutely destroyed my opponent's arguments. And she decided she was going to take a new tack, so she tried to research what is out there. She came across the James White Sola Scriptura argument. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Uh, well, he basically argues that Sola Scriptura and Solo Scriptura 
are two different things. Well, of course, they're from they're, the words mean the same thing. They mean alone. And she's basically arguing that the Bible alone does not mean the Bible by itself. Well, of course it does. That's cognitive dissonance. You, you can't argue that the Bible alone is the supreme authority and then yet argue that that is not to the exclusion of the churches and the councils. And she was basically trying to argue both sides. And the reason I bring this example up is because this is what you see over and over again. Uh, they they argued that, well, you know, Paul says that we're saved by faith outside of the works of the law. Yeah, but what about Matthew chapter 25? Oh, well, that, that doesn't apply to us. Well, who does it apply to? Uh, what about James 2.24 where it says we're not justified by faith alone? Well, oh, that's just a justification before men so they argue that our works don't mean anything except in special cases where they mean this but they don't mean what you think that they mean so it's like you like you were basically elucidating they they do everything they can to tap that dance around the truth and they make these outrageous and, and outlandish arguments when the truth is 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 staring them right in the face and it's just really really very 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 strange and bizarre but then you also look at martin luther luke he was not a man to be admired if you know the history of martin luther and what he stood for and what he believed in he was not at all a, a model of a person we should follow when you look at the lives of the saints when you look at uh, a, a, at a saint francis of Assisi or a mother Teresa you would want to emulate a john paul ii these are people you would want to emulate luther was not in that in that category at all was he yeah i think he was bipolar and yet he had uh, such a problem of sin when he was younger and uh, so he kind of created his own way out of it <laughs> the being saved by by uh, faith as opposed to works, is is something that uh, became a tradition of false exegesis. And uh, I have to get back to you know further further going over this this concept of works. The only works that Paul ever puts down are these works that the baptized Pharisees in the church, the Judaizers. The ones who Jude says secretly entered in have gone in the way of Korah because they have gone against the authority of the Catholic Church. These, the, this group is, is the ones that were causing all this havoc for Paul. And that's why you hear Paul use the phrase, or is he the God of the, of the Jews only? You know, over and over and over again, he's, he's in this mode. And because he's being confronted with this same thing that Protestants never never caught on to. Now, Peter talks about Paul's letters and says Paul letter, Paul's letters are hard to understand, and uh, they uh, they can uh, basically uh, send you to hell if you're not if you're not understanding them correctly. Mm-hmm. So this should be a huge you know stop sign for people to start really thinking of these words, of these words grace, of these words faith, 
of these words works. What is obedience to the faith? The apostles were Jews who never understood the concept of belief outside of having a covenant relationship with God. And so these covenant relationships didn't go away. What did Christ say who came who established the Passover and came in the flesh 1,300 years later and said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you. Do this in, in memory of me. This isn't, uh, you know, just faith alone. This is do this. This is I'm establishing the new covenant with you, and I want you to keep this covenant in obedience to the faith. God knows what we require for holiness and for our salvation much better than we are. And due to this false understanding of works, you have the entire body of Protestantism separating from the religion of ritual that's all over the New Covenant. It's all over the, all over the New Testament. If it's there, then as Christians, we are called to live it because that is living the New Covenant. And this word covenant in itself is, is amazing. It comes from the ancient Semitic word berit. And uh, you know, the modern Protestant understanding is covenant means a contract. Well, berit in itself is more of a family relationship. It's saying, uh, I will be your God, you will be my people. But in a covenant relationship between people, what the covenant uh, was subscribed, what it uh uh, how you got into that covenant, you did it through a covenant meal shared with a friend and your covenant oath. And there was a blood bond where there was a sharing of blood where one person would actually cut the other, uh, cut their arm, another one cut his arm, and they would put their uh, arms together in a blood bond. So what did Christ do? He took that imagery of covenant and he brought the shadow of the covenant into the heavenly reality when he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in memory of me. What does that blood bond do? Well, Paul told us, is not the bread that we take participation in the body of Christ? Is not the wine that we drink participation in the blood of Christ? The cup of benediction, the cup of blessing. Is the blood of Christ before the blessing or after? Obviously after. Paul is, Paul is giving us uh, insight into the true nature of the covenant with, with Christ. And what he's doing is also giving us a rhetorical question. Who's the rhetorical question to? This goes against this whole idea of Scripture alone. The rhetorical question is to those he stayed with for up to three years, teaching them the faith. So they're teaching them this incredible body of knowledge. And then in these epistles, he writes, you know, years later sometimes, he's writing to people who he already taught the faith, who he already established bishop, priests, and deacons with, and he's addressing these subjects that only they have full knowledge of. If these epistles were supposed to be uh, complete, you know, uh, uh, doctrines of certain ideas of faith, then Paul would be doing an absolutely lousy job. Because when he says the rhetorical questions over and over again, 
and even when he says that, behold, Israel according to flesh, are not those who offer the sacrifice partakers of the altar. We have an altar uh, that those who uh, uh, participate in the Levitical altars cannot celebrate with us. You know, all of these words are to people living the Mass. So it's, it's completely impossible for there to be Scripture alone. It's like if, uh, if you and I went out and built a house, and I was a carpenter, and I showed you how to build this house. And we went through everything. We, you know, started out at the foundation, built the walls, went through the electrical, and had a very nice house. And I said, well, I'm taking off. And uh, a couple years later, you give me a phone call and say the wiring's messed up. And I say, well, okay, well, let's look at this, this, and this. Well, Paul's letters are written the same way. Paul is not, you know, talking to people who don't know the foundations of the faith, he's talking to people who need a little bit of work on the wiring. Yeah, yeah, good point. Where you talk about uh, where he's addressing the the, uh, Corinthians, for example, he says, well, (laughs) you know, some of you are sick. Well, you know why you're sick? You're you're sick because you're receiving the uh, body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. That's why you're sick. So this is a perfect example of how he's addressing directly uh, cause and effect. Uh, so anyone listening, this is uh, the Four Persons Podcast, and our guest tonight is Luke Haskell. If you want to call in, the number is 515-602-9655. Again, 515-602-9655. Luke, I want to go back to a couple of things that you said. First of all, when my my take on Paul and his letters, and I, I, I don't proclaim that my take is any more perfect than anybody else's, but my take on Paul and his letters, that the, the tone that I that is that your phone? Yeah, hold on, I'm not turned off. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Spammerous call. <laughs> the, the tone that I pick up from from Paul's letters is that he's addressing. The the problem, and, and to be honest with you, to be frank with, with you, I see it in a lot of Catholic churches today, is the people that are going through the motions, the people that were following the Mosaic Law for the sake of the Mosaic Law. Uh, they didn't have the faith behind it. One of the things that Jesus addressed most sternly in the Gospels is these people that, uh, okay, they tied, they did this, they did that, they followed all the motions, but they didn't have any love in their hearts. So they were going through the motions. They were they were following the mechanical action of the law without the deeper, uh, as Jesus put it, without the more important things of mercy and love and compassion and, and all that. That's the first thing I took. The second thing that I took is when you talk about how sola fide uh, erases the fear of God, the necessary fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. But I want you to, but I want to take that and kind of flip the script because it says the fear of God, and in, in this case we're talking about servile fear, fear of punishment, uh, which is a necessary thing. It's, it is the guardrail that we're uh, that's guarding us from going over the cliff. Uh, but if a Christian stops there, if if the extent of their 
of their uh, faith and their faith practice is uh, fire insurance <laughs> to do the do the minimum that they that they feel like they have to do uh, to get to keep out of hell. They're not really uh, living the life of a, of, of a Christian. Fear is fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's just supposed to be the beginning. You're supposed to progress beyond that. What do you, what do you say to people that you see stuck in that rut? Oh, of course. I mean, uh, what does Paul mean when when he basically says it's not now I who live, but Christ who lives in me? A Christian is called to imitate Christ. Uh, this uh, idea of works of the law compared to the law written on our hearts, you know, the, the Jewish law was for people of hardened hearts. And uh, the Jewish law is based in rule, fear, temporal punishment, where the law of Christ is based on a transformation of the soul. Uh, the, the prophecy was fulfilled of the law written on our hearts. And this law in itself, we could call it the moral law and natural law, for a Christian is raised to the Beatitudes. And so this idea of agape love is, is simply being Christ to man. And in this is the only way works actually create merit. Because it's not our works. Only God is good. So it is the goodness of God working through us, through grace. So when Paul talks in uh, Ephesians 2, which Protestants you know, is, is constantly use, but they don't break down the words grace, faith, and works. The first mention uh, of the word is the beginning of this is grace. You are saved through grace, through faith, not of works that anyone may boast, because we are as workmanship created in good works. So we are saved through grace. So the law written on our hearts is grace given freely. All the sacraments are not works. They're gifts from God. They're grace given freely. And these Ephesians were living the sacramental life through grace given freely, through faith. Well, we go back to obedience to the faith. It is the narrow road of transforming grace that God established for us to return our souls to the garden, from turning uh, ego, you know, you will not die, you will be as gods, to humility, obey your prelates who have the rule over you, who watch over your souls. You know, the, everything that God does for us is to return our souls to the state that it was in, in the garden. So this is saved by grace through faith, this obedience to the faith, this narrow road in order to keep us from Satan's uh, deceptions, which are constantly on both sides of that road. Not of works that no man may boast. Who's doing the boasting? It is the baptized Pharisees. Uh, and the uh, the law, what, is, what they're boasting about. For we are his workmanship, workmanship through transforming grace. And we are called to do his works in that state of transforming grace. 
So being Christ to man is being a Christian. Christ says, be holy, for I am holy. Be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Christianity. And that's what is needed to change the world. And we lost that along the way. Yeah, the other thing that that I like to point out uh, is that um, if, if salvation is by faith alone, then we have eliminated the other two cardinal virtues. And Paul says there's three. There's faith, there's hope, and there's love. And he names love as the greatest of the three. If salvation is by faith alone, what need is there for hope and love? Because uh, how could you have hope? You don't have to have hope because you cannot hope for that which you've already acquired. So there's no hope, so there's no need of perseverance. Uh, in persevering in hope for what you hope to acquire because you've already acquired it. And the other thing is that uh, love requires a cost. Love has to be demonstrated, and love is naturally going to uh, lead to suffering. So uh, the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us very, very clearly that uh well, uh, Jesus says to, to uh, that Mary Magdalene, her sins were forgiven because of her great love. James tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Matthew tells us that uh, those who persevere to the end will be saved. So this doctrine of faith alone basically writes perseverance and hope and love out of the gospel, doesn't it? Yeah, and Paul even says that the law is fulfilled in love. And what's fascinating is uh, if you look at the Galatians, he talks about the law being a pedagogue. A pedagogue was a child's taskmaster. So because of the 400 years in Egypt, God gave this pedagogy to the Israelites, these rules. There's tons and tons of rules and regulations. And then you hear Paul say, when I was a child, I, I thought as a child. I acted like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And he goes on and says that there's faith, hope, and charity or love. And the greatest of these is charity or love, agape love. Love for fellow man, love uh, expressing Christ through us uh, to fellow man. And so he puts this, put this together between the old and the new and growing into being, you know, the the uh, the man instead of the child through this, you know, just purity of love instead of this bogged down rules and regulations of the old covenant, which was the you know given as a child's taskmaster. So I, I, I find that fascinating, just the, you know, the differences and, and what the cross did. The cross wrote the laws on our hearts. The love of the cross gave us the ability to change our, our own uh, lower nature, per se. You know, we're all born into this lower nature. <coughs> and... God gave us these gifts. But what is really sad is that 
you know, 2,000 years ago, God established this sacramental life, everything that he understood we needed to fight against this lower nature. And 1,500 years later, man created scripture alone and faith alone in our lower nature. You know, the other thing that I find perplexing uh, when you engage in, in uh, with a lot of these groups, and, and there's a lot of them that fall into this category from your uh, you know, from your Baptist uh, to your, you know, Seventh-day Adventist to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, there are a lot of them that fall into this, this category of this, I don't want to say contempt, but it almost gets to that point, uh, contempt for the mother of Jesus. And uh, isn't that strange that they have so much uh, um, disregard for her and... Um, they just don't see the typology of the Old Testament about our Blessed Mother. They don't see uh, what the New Testament says about her, um, especially, you know, like the book of Revelation. Why is it they have so much contempt for our Blessed Lady? I don't think they even see the mystical body of Christ as a truth. I think they see it as a metaphor. We're baptized into the mystical body of Christ. We're baptized into the promise of Abraham fulfilled. Uh, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children. Now, if you key in on this word promise, Peter uses it when he talks about that we've been given these promises, and by these, we are partakers of divine nature. If you look at Romans 9, uh, Paul's talking about the family of God coming through Isaac, and he uses Isaac as a symbol of the family of God, not the earthly lineage. And he says, uh, these are the children of the promise. So when we enter the family of God through our baptism, we'll become the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. We have this washing away of the original sin so that what Paul says in Hebrews 12 can come true when he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn, to thousands of angels, to the spirits of the just made perfect, Jesus Christ, mediator of the new covenant, and a sprinkling of blood that speaks better and enables. This is the spirituality of the Holy Mass with the mystical body of Christ, as Christ is head of the body and mediator. And in this mystical body, as a partaker of divine nature, we're given a spiritual mother. We cannot say that Mary is, is, is less in this body. You know, she is the mother of God, the mother of the incarnate God into time. And so... When Christ at the cross gives his mother to the disciple whom he loved, did he only love one? These, these image, images in Scripture are so deep and so spiritual. John is a symbol of the church in, in this story. And so God is giving his mother to the church. And so it all begins with not understanding the mystical body, but even before that, 
not taking God as the word when he said, this is my body. And the early church recognized all these things. These were not things that were that were put together centuries later. The early church recognized Mary as the queen mother. They recognized her as the Ark of the Covenant because they were so versed in the Old Testament. They were kind of they were able to kind of kind of connect the dots, and we pass that on uh, for centuries. Uh, and then Luther and the Protestants came and kind of blew that understanding to smithereens and and it's not to say that luther was anti-mary because he wasn't but he he basically set the stage for this disconnection from the early church fathers because the early church fathers were the bridge from the old testament to the new testament they they kind of connected the dots right yeah and this you know i've also often been challenged by uh Protestants talking about the the church fathers putting emphasis on scripture, and they they're trying to take these you know ten second sound bites or, or the cookie cutter theory, which uh, you know they do to the covenant mystery, the Judeo Catholic you know Bible, and uh, so they take these words out of context, and uh, you know I've read most of the church fathers, and what they don't understand is that the church fathers saw the scripture as sufficient because it taught the authority of the Catholic church. And they used this. And they said, you know, people are challenging the church. They're saying, where's your pedigree, pal? You know, show me your apostolic succession. And uh, it's, it's, I often, uh, sometimes what I, what, what I did in these, in these rooms, just to get people to, you know, answer a question, and uh, the first question about Scripture alone is I would tell them, okay, show me a verse that you think proves Scripture alone. Then show me how it doesn't contradict the hundreds of verses that show an authoritative church. And it's also, it's completely illogical to think there is no authoritative church when it took an authoritative church guided by the Holy Spirit to compose the the New Testament, so it's uh, yeah. I will always it, found that argument. No roots. Yeah, I've always found that argument perplexing. That how can you say that the Scripture alone is the authority when without the Church you can't even discern what the canon of Scripture is? You can't even tell me that Hebrews is scripture without the authority of the church. Uh, Luther wanted to throw it out. Luther wanted to throw James out. Luther wanted to throw the book of Revelation out. So how can you even discern what the canon of scripture is without the authority of the church? Uh, I find that uh, astounding. Uh, The other thing, going back to the church fathers, we had William Hemsworth on on Saturday, and he gave us his his top five go-to early church fathers and I'd be interested to know who you would say are the are the your go-to handy reference uh, church fathers that you go to over and over and over again uh, in these types of uh, debates in these types of explanations. Give, give me a few, anyway. Wow, uh, you know, I always end up with Irenaeus. I end up with Augustine. I, I end up with uh, Justin Martyr. Uh, the uh, 
the dialogues between Augustine and Jerome are like bickering brothers. You know, what, what I found fascinating, and, and this really opened me up to, you know, kind of a parallel universe of understanding, was how Justin uh, Martyr approached his first apology. In the first apology, you know, in before 150 A.D., you have this member of the Catholic Church describing the, the Mass. You have him talking about baptism being regeneration and born again. You have him talking about there's the people don't receive the Eucharist until they are born again, until they are baptized, which is that spiritual cleansing so that we can be involved spiritually with the host of heaven uh, uh, in, in that Mass, which is the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. But you also have a fascinating context in which he places that entire first apology, which could be summed up as Satan created paganism to keep people from Catholic truth. And he's describing all of these things that the demons saw when Moses set up the law and the, the faith that Israelites were living in things. And he says that the demons created the pagan gods, and the pagan gods had ritual washings. They had food to the gods and become one with the gods. They had triune gods. And he says all of this was basically created to keep people from Catholic truth. So we're dealing with a preternatural intelligence who puts Freud you know, to shame makes Freud look like a kindergarten. And this preternatural intelligence had from the beginning of time to mold and create these incredible deceptions, practically a parallel universe going along where you have truth and anti-truth through time. Augustine describes this as the city of God, you know, and, you know, being basically against this, this anti-truth. And now we fast forward to 2023, uh, and in the world, and the and, and, and the secular world has uh, kind of gone the way of dispensing with the concept of truth altogether, and that uh, truth is whatever I want to make it. Uh, if I'm a man that thinks I'm a woman, then that's my truth. Uh, it, you know, whatever whatever particular group that I want to. Uh, put myself in, align myself with, um, the the idea of objective truth has been completely uh, thrown out, and that's the first thing. And the second thing is there's no responsibility for anything. Uh, any any sinful action or any flaw in a person's uh, uh, personality or character, well, that now that's a disorder. You, you've got a disorder. You've got an illness that you need to take this uh, medication for. So the idea of objective truth and the idea of accountability uh, is out the window today, and the result of that can only be chaos, right? Well, yeah, we, we uh, completely separated from the way. I mean, uh, God came to create a great reset, a true great reset. I mean, uh, uh, you look at this word, the way, in Scripture, and people think that, you know, this was the name of the church. no. It wasn't the name. It was the narrow road of transforming grace. The way was the sacramental life. The way was the authority. The way was the 
submission and humility. Obey your prelates who have the rule over your for they watch over your souls. The way was uh, this this process of cleansing our souls. And we have this authority established through the church, which James of the Council of Jerusalem, he saw prophecy fulfilled in this church, and the prophecy of Amos fulfilled with the Gentiles who come into the church. And James explained this as the reestablished kingdom of David. So we have the reestablished kingdom of David fulfilled in prophecy. And we have God's authority. So what happened? Well, faith alone and scripture alone, created by man of fallen nature, created entropy. When we an entropy, we go from organization to disorganization. So at this point, with the idea of scripture alone, man basically creates his own image of God and an interpretation he chooses which is formed by his own biases instead of obedience to the faith on the narrow road of transforming grace. So what happened after this period? You removed the authority and you ended up in a false age of enlightenment. It got so bad where Nietzsche says God is dead. But this was just the start. We moved on from there, and then we separated from the moral and natural law through liberalism. And going past removing the moral and natural law, you have this wokeism where you separate from all concepts of reason. And basically, you call yourself God because you're, you're saying you're a different gender than what you truly are. Therefore, you're, you're trying to you know, form this different identity than what God gave you, and you're playing God. And at that point, you know, once you achieve a level of insanity, there's no blocks on how far that insanity will go. The only thing that can change it is divine intervention. And it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where anybody who's reasonable is looked at as crazy by the, you know, by the insane. And, you know, that's a perfect segue into, you know, people ask us where we got our name, the poor persons. And this is a perfect segue into explaining that. The four persons is taken straight from the scriptures. Mark chapter 12, and the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your whole strength. So the emotional person, the mental person, the physical person, and the spiritual person, those four persons must be 100% uh, submissive, obedient to God, uh, and basically now uh, we're in a we're in a situation where a person, uh, my heart belongs to whatever I want it to belong to, my body belongs to whatever I want to do with it, uh, my mind is uh, open to whatever the new flavor of the week truth is, and the spiritual person is thrown completely out the window like he doesn't even exist, uh, and and. Basically, what, what you have as a result of that is, is a world gone crazy, uh, and God foresaw that. He saw, and, and it's interesting because you talk about this insanity, but it's, it's the spiritual person and the mental person go hand in hand. Because if the spiritual person is living a life of evil, 
living a life of open rebellion to God, conscience is not going to leave him alone to the point where eventually mental illness has to be the uh, the inevitable result of deliberately living a life of evil and disobedience. That person is literally, to use coin the age-old term, making themselves crazy, driving themselves crazy. Uh, and our psychiatric profession today, in large part, cannot see this at all. They look at these at these school shootings, and every one of these school shooters just about says they they're hearing voices and the voices are telling them kill and they're in their you know worshiping lucifer and all these crazy things and yet the mental health professionals want to pretend like it's uh the you know the the molecules and the chemicals are just moving around in the brain the wrong way they've totally divorced the concept of right and wrong uh from from the concept of co- of cognition and this this insanity, that this mental illness that you pointed out, this insanity is the inevitable, predictable result, right? Yeah, in fact, you see how we've gone full circle in, in the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve, man, was completely united to God. I mean, they're uh, the symbol of them being unclothed. They're naked. They didn't have that personal ego, egotism. They were, they were so united to God and God's love that they didn't even see themselves as separate from God. And so you got this entity that enters the garden who says when it comes to, you know, the apple, disobedience, he goes, you won't die, you'll be as gods. So what have we done? We've come full circle. And that insanity that has been planted is is something that uh, there's no way around. There's no way around it increasing deeper and deeper into insanity without incredible, miraculous divine intervention. And, I mean, if you understand the nature of God, you you have to believe that that incredible uh, divine intervention uh, is coming. Uh, But... There's going to be there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some purgation. There's going to be some suffering first because the justice of God, um, you know, must be satisfied. The justice of God cannot be uh, ignored. And when we live in a society that's, that's that's murdering, you know, unborn babies by the by the you know the millions and 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 sex trafficking and and like I said, these mass shootings and, and, and parading pornography and, and perversion in the streets and celebration of the occult. We're raising up the, the occult as, as something that needs to be recognized. And all of this is just blatant sin right in the face of God. Luke, God is a, is, is a merciful God, but he is a just God as well. And his, and his justice cannot be... Uh, mocked openly day after day after day without there being a, a consequence. No. And, uh, you know, if you look at this, you know, ideological subversion, what's going on, it is so evil and it is so organized. You know, the fathers of the country, when they put the, uh, the Constitution together, they said that the Constitution was designed for a faithful people and cannot survive without one. 
And so this Marxist ideology that has developed, there's no way around it except for by that divine intervention that the Constitution will not be destroyed and probably more sooner than later. Because once you remove that faithful people from those words that our rights are given to us by God, and you replace those words that the rights are given to us by the state, which becomes God, then you, you don't even realize it, but you're creating your own slavery. And these are the useful idiots of Marxism. They're creating their own slavery and don't even know it. Yeah, and, and the common denominator that I've noticed over the years that why they've been able to, to implement this program to some effect is the common thread is hatred. Uh, they they unite people by hatred, uh, uh, by by race, by by religion, by gender, by age, by uh, religious affiliation, whatever group that they can pit against whatever group, that seems to be the string uh, that unites people who otherwise don't really agree on on a whole lot or don't really have uh you know a a, a lot in common uh you know for instance i you know i would say that 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 jews in america for instance jews in america do not have very much in common with liberal uh liberal uh secularists or even liberal christians uh, and yet they're they're united as a voting block because of the hatred that's ginned up against other groups. And then you look at the hatred that there is between uh, the Jews and the Muslims in large extent, in large in large areas. And yet they're both, again, faithful adherence to this one party because of this party has been able to kind of manipulate their hatred towards other groups and kind of unite them. It's a confederation of people that hate all each other. Isn't that, isn't that bizarre? Yeah, it's a, it's it's just so evil and it's just so sad, you know. Uh, Christians want to love. They just they just want to love and they want to express God's love. And when you're up against things like that, it's just so frustrating because it's not just that you know these people are angry, these people are you know attacking all the time is that they don't even experience that freedom of love. And it's just sad. I mean, this idea of identity politics, I mean, it is is so immature. You know, when you compare it to, you know, the philosophy of Christianity, where, you know, the eternal soul has has no color, and so we should focus on what nurtures the eternal soul, period. And these basic concepts are just destroyed by egotism, but also by fear. Because this fear in itself, everybody has a desire for God uh, built into their system. But Satan takes this desire and he twists it. And he replaces God with other things. And so they never have the true thing. 
And so they always have this longing to be loved, and yet they don't even comprehend what true love is. Yeah, it's amazing. I just want to say hi to Joseph Gibson, who is uh, listening to us in the chat room. Luke, it, it's been such a privilege to have you on, and, and uh, wow, uh, it's, uh, this hour went too quickly. I, I want you to know the invitation is open any time uh, for you to write for, for our blog, any time that you'd want to. I'd love to invite you as a writer if, you, if you'd like to write for us. Uh, the blog is at thefourpersons.net. You're invited to come back on our show anytime. The invitation is absolutely open. Uh, or even, um, you know, have your own show if you if if you'd like, um, and the and you can find all our shows, all our blog talk radio shows at thefourpersons.com. That's our that's our show page. Again, I want to thank you. It's been such a blessing to have you on, and uh, wow, I I just love to hear you talk as much as I love to read what you write. And I wonder if you would. Uh, Honor us by uh, leaving us with a closing prayer. Sure. Uh, I guess I guess I need to think about that for a second, just because of where we're at in the world now. And uh, I guess it's just after everything we discussed, I just it's, it's just I ask God for peace. I ask God to convert souls. I ask God to open souls. I ask God to truly understand that you're only going to find true love in the heart of Christ. And uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. And again, I hope we'll have you back again. Thank you, Luke. Thank you.